Over a three-decade career, I built two communication agencies, Communicate and Capital C, and Fresh Intelligence, a research firm. Man, we had a great run, won Agency of the Year, 100 Golden Best Shows awards, got inducted in a couple of Hall of Fames, even some documentaries talked about our unique approach to brand building. And that approach was really about insights. We had a feel for the consumer's head, art, and hands, how they think, feel, and behave. One day, I planned to write a book about some of the campaigns we created and the success we had helping our clients realize that by discovering unmet needs, the things that create an itch, the things that, that you could bring your product and service to say, I can help you get to where you want to go, that was success. But something changed between 2008 and 2012 that made a lot of what we did irrelevant. See, marketers went from spending budgets to now having to invest in They wanted validation. They didn't just want feel, they wanted to know empirical evidence. Would that idea work? What kind of volume would it create? How would it move market share? How would it change consumer perceptions? And this gut instinct gave away to numbers. And I decided it was time to turn over that business to the next generation who'd be much more driven by data, that there'd be truth in numbers. But at the same time, this brilliant young man, John Dick, was questioning truth in numbers. The numbers that many marketers and sales and even leaders were making decisions on. He felt that if consumer data was going to be the lifeblood of decision making, then this blood had to be pure and enriched with the collective energy of a nation and not corrupted or slanted by only drawing from a few who still had telephone landlines and were prepared to spend 20 minutes answering questions. Hello. So he created this business called Civic Science. It's a consumer intelligence research platform. What they tell you they do is translate real-time consumer intentions into market-changing business intelligence. Simple terms. We say that um, everything affects everything and everything's constantly changing, so we, tr- we try to study everything constantly, and that's, that's what we do. They power the world's opinions and quickly deliver the data to the decision-makers who care. But the question is how? And what you'll soon learn will astound you while getting to know a guest who's a great leader, who understands there's a higher purpose than profit, And that isn't enough. He's also a singer in a band called the Moscow Mule. You're listening to the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network. And this is Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. John Dick, young, brilliant entrepreneur, father, trailblazer, and lead singer of a rock and roll band, Moscow Mule. Welcome to Chatter That Matters. Thanks, Tony. Great to be here. I can't remember the last time I was referred to as young, so that's uh, getting us off to a great start. (laughs) So two expressions that I believe in, truth in numbers and strength in numbers, are they not the very essence of the business you're creating with civic science? I would add that truth in people and strength in people is an important part of our essence because, look, numbers can come from a lot of different places, right? But when we talk about trying to understand the world, we have to remember the numbers, at least that we look at, and most data that when people talk about data in, in the marketing con- uh, context today, we're talking about behind these numbers are moms and dads and kids and workers and people with dreams and people with fears and challenges, right? It, one of the troubling things I think that have evolved out of the so-called kind of big data movement uh, of the past like 10, 15 years is how reductive it really is, right? We we reduce people to numbers on a screen, right? Because we can spy on their behaviors and based on that spying, we can infer things about them. And, and those inferences don't only tell a partial story about people. Um, they don't answer why 
uh, we do what we do, but, but they even tell an inaccurate story, right? Because a lot of those signals aren't, aren't as reliable as, as we might think they are. So, so I would say, yes, I mean, it's truth in numbers, strength in numbers, but really understanding that those numbers are born of people, I think makes it super, super important when we try to give it context to understand the why. So let's talk about humanity for a minute, because there's a lot of noise out there right now that all this data is starting to creep people out. What's the difference between big data that sort of works in that plane and your world, which are much more focused on the humanity and the essence of what matters? I mean, first of all, people should be creeped out. They should be a thousand percent creeped out by the data about us, um, not just what is being gathered, but how it's how it's being gathered. We, it, and what's even worse is the sort of false and manipulative barter we're asked to make or told that we're making, right? The media company or the retailer says, you know, click on this box and I'm saying more content providers, right? The platforms and the media companies that say, click on this box and let us sort of track everything that you do. And in return, guess what? You get to read this article for free, right? And everyone's like, oh, that seems like a fair trade because I don't want to have to pay to read that article. But what's really problematic about that barter is all the knowledge and all the power lives on one side of the barter. The consumer does not understand the extent to which both the depth and the breadth of that information and all the things that it's being used to do. And we can't possibly be expected to understand all of that in the time that it clicks takes to click on that one box to read the one article. Even reading about it isn't worth the effort. And so people should be really creeped out about it. And, And I do really believe there's a reckoning coming and we're starting to see the beginnings of it. I mean, consumers' concerns and fears about privacy on the internet have been skyrocketing just in the last six months. Like it, this is the beginning of a reckoning, not by any means the middle or end of it. So I, I want to point that out first. Um, what do we do differently? It's pretty simple. We just talk to people. We ask them questions. We say, Tony, uh, what do you think about uh, the, the NBA's um, officiating this year? You can choose to answer or not answer. If you don't want to answer, you move along and you've contributed, you know, nothing to the pool and that's fine. And you've, you know, gone on with the rest of your life. The only thing that we study are the answers that people choose to give to us. Um, we make it very clear to everybody what we do with the results, which is all aggregated, anonymized and uh, meticulously uh, protected and secured in ways that there's no risk of exposure or loss of anonymity or any of those kinds of things. And, and that barter, as it were, all the power resides with the respondent because you can easily walk away. Uh, and so I think that's that's the quintessential difference, right? Where did you get your insights way back then when you were starting to look at data and, and numbers and the decisions people were making, but there was a real flaw in that data? In my first company, we were consumers of this kind of data users of survey data, polling data, whatever you want to call it. And, you know, even this was like, go back to like 2007. But the majority of research at the time was still done, believe it or not, by landline telephone, right? That was right at the beginning when people started to move away from landline phones. And then not only that, the people that didn't have them, but also people who had them, but telemarketing had become so prolific that people just didn't answer their phones any longer. And the people who who did answer and participate didn't look like the people who didn't, right? And so you were getting this really flawed or at least partial view of the consumer. And then survey companies said, that's fine. We'll just call cell phones because everyone has one of those. Problem with cell phones is no one answers calls for numbers they don't recognize, right? And the people who do don't look like the ones who don't. And we were seeing all of that begin to happen at that time. And I'm, and as a buyer of that information, I'm like, 
I was really skeptical of it. And of course, we knew the internet was going to provide the solution to that. The really the solution that was developed for the web are what are called survey panels. Um, and survey panels are websites where people can sign up and essentially answer surveys for some form of compensation. It's a, it's a side hustle, right? The issue is, and the sort of dirty little secret, and, and by the way, those that survey panel research powers 97% of the consumer market research industry today. Um, we might be the last third 3% that don't do that. But the people who sit at home and answer surveys for five bucks for hours on end every day don't look like you and me. And I don't necessarily even mean that demographically. It's just that the consumer who's sitting at home with the time and inclination to do that for five bucks just has a different psychographic profile from the other types of consumers. That survey taker is more price sensitive. They're more likely to use coupons. They're more likely to eat at a value menu at a fast food restaurant. Like I got a million of those, right? That was sort of like something that marketers were blind to. They didn't realize, A, it was the best information they were getting at the time. But they were sort of blind to the flaws in it. And and we kind of diagnosed all of that, right? And realized there's got to be a better way to, A, engage a broader, more representative swath of the population in this process. And then if we can do that, not only will the data be more valuable or more reliable, excuse me, and representative, but there'll be so much more of it. And more data is always better than less, right? And so the scale that we could achieve would allow us to study and, and analyze things that other people couldn't. Hi, it's Tony Chapman. You're listening to Chatted That Matters. When we come back, John Dick leaves a successful business he started six years earlier because he has this insight that he's talking about, that marketers and leaders and people involved with making decisions needed better numbers. But the interesting thing is he does it right before the economic meltdown in 2008. And in addition, do the clients that have been buying all the old numbers really want to hear the truth in terms of what they've been purchasing? Hello, John. How are you doing today? Well, reason for the call today, John, is something just came across my desk, John. It is perhaps the best thing I've seen in the last six months. If you have 60 seconds, I'd like to share the idea with you. You got a minute? We are looking at a grand slam home run. Bye-bye. Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman continues. I have a very special guest today. His name's John Deck, and what he knows about the world and how we're collectively thinking feeling and behaving might surprise you. So John, take me back 2007. You've got a great business going that you were a buyer of this data and you weren't happy about it. So you decide to go all in and start a business. Take me back to that time because that's a big move from kind of leaving what was a, a business you started with a friend to going on your own. And that company was great. I mean, it was so my first company was a company called GSP and very different business. We helped tech, we helped, we helped early stage companies, early stage businesses do business with the government. Uh, there was a huge gap. Uh, large companies have lobbyists and consultants galore that can help them navigate Washington and their state capitals, but startups and, and early stage companies did not. And meanwhile, there's a ton of opportunity for those kinds of companies in, in government, whether it's grants or sales opportunities or the like. So we, we created a business and it was uh, very successful. And about six or so years into it, that business had reached a place where I felt like I'd done most of what I could do there. I had the idea for what became civic science in the back of my mind. Uh, and then in the middle of that, uh, financial opportunity presented itself. And so, so left and went on to start the company. Now, I was going to take a year off. I had worked pretty much nonstop uh, building that company from the day, you know, I came out of school, you know, had my, my second daughter had just been born in 2007 and I had never taken much of a break. So I was going to take a year off and play more golf and kind of start the new business in a year at March of 08. But this opportunity came to us, a, a, a guy at Carnegie Mellon who ran a program there um, received a grant essentially to incubate a business very much like ours. 
And we were given an opportunity to start the company through this incubator. Seems almost too good to be true that we got all this funding. They hired our first group of engineers. The catch was I had to start right away. By September of, of 07, um, civic science was off the ground. You made a comment about um, me sort of leaving in the middle of a difficult financial time. We did not know that difficult financial time was only just around the corner. We had no idea what was about to hit us. A month seldom goes by that I don't ask myself, had I waited until March of 08 to start that business? And what what happened in the early first quarter of 08 financially or economically, would I have gotten cold feet and chosen not to start the business? Now, I'll never know. Um, and I'm so glad that I did it anyway, but it was brutal, man. It was a brutal stretch there for almost two years trying to just keep the company afloat. It was hard to raise money. Money was extremely expensive. It was hard to convince people to come join a startup if they had a good job somewhere else because the perception of the, the lack of stability and security there was an issue. But, but yeah, I mean, it definitely, uh, we were playing from the, we were playing from the black tees at that point. Is it fair to say, though, John, that, that because we're dealing with a very similar thing now with COVID, that the people that survived 2008, the entrepreneurs that survived COVID become much better entrepreneurs. I mean, their level of resilience, their ability to pivot, their ability to persevere. Is that not a fair statement that you probably became a much better entrepreneur because of that? Oh, absolutely. No question about it. Um, although I will say the difference between COVID and the financial crisis in 08 is that nobody benefited from the financial crisis in 08. There are certain industry categories that are booming because of COVID, right? If you were in certain areas of CPG, uh, even of, quite frankly, our business benefited immensely from COVID. Information was in extraordinarily high demand. Regardless of whether you're on the, the side of the ledger that there's more demand for your product or not, dramatic change had to happen. As, as leaders, we had to really start thinking about tactics even more than long-term strategy because every day was different. One of the things I was fascinated about listening and watching some of your interviews, you're almost shocked that when you came to some of these leaders to describe that they really weren't buying truth in numbers, and this might be a much better mousetrap. It was a, a much more representative of the population. It was a much better way to collect data. There was a lot of resistance because it was something new. I mean, honestly, there's a lot of people out there that opened the door for us because it was new. You know, there's a certain type of customer out there that is fascinated with the new. One thing you learn the hard way as an entrepreneur is that that customer is seldom representative of the larger marketplace, right? And so we tend to, we tend to sometimes over-engineer our solution for that quote, so-called early adopter and then we'll realize the hard way that they aren't necessarily reflected in the rest of the space. If you're listening, this is such an incredible insight if you're thinking about starting a business. You might have early acceptance from early adopters, as John's saying, but the real heavy lifting has to go when you go from the, the few that are trying anything new to the many that are trying the status quo or buying the status quo. Given that uh, with the understanding that there are certain companies out there that are attracted to new and shiny, and, and they're easy to find, quite frankly. There's fewer of them than you wish there would be. But as we got sort of further along the adoption curve, you, you, know, you make a good point. And it wasn't necessarily that we were new. There were really two forces that we fought against. One is that we are selling to very large consumer brand companies, all logos that my 13-year-old daughter and my 72-year-old mother would recognize, right? So all big name companies where a lot of people in those businesses, they wake up every day with the primary job is to not get, is to not lose their job. We were coming to them with a story that said, hey, the data you've been basing your decisions on for a really long time is fundamentally wrong. 
And that's a very offensive point of view to bring to somebody who really potentially threatened by that point. And particularly if they're the ones within the company that have been proliferating that information around the company, because the, the CEO says, wait a minute, why have you been bringing me this garbage and allowing me to base my decisions on it? And so we had to be very careful. It was a very delicate story. And we ran into a lot of resistance where people didn't even want to hear it from us. Quite frankly, the way we ended up eventually getting around it was by going over it. We got higher in those organizations when we got to more senior marketing, the more of the consumers of the information. We said, hey, look, you were being given the best of what was available, but it's flawed. And what we have is much better. And, and it, was, it was uncanny, Tony, how often they would say, I knew it. I knew that stuff we were getting. I, I knew that these people who were sitting at home and these guinea pigs answering surveys all day were, weren't representative, right? And so we were validating a lot of that. But, but it also made a lot of enemies for us at the rank and file uh, levels of that business as well. And, and that's been one of the more delicate things we've had to navigate even to this day. And if you're listening to this, another masterclass business to business marketing and selling. Three types of buyers. Strategic buyer really wants to focus on how can I get my organization to where it needs to go. There's a technical buyer saying, if you're going to bring me something new, does it fit within my infrastructure? Because I, I need to have the round peg and the round hole together. Third is the economic buyer or the person that's fearing change because they're the ones that are vested in it. You're thought of as very highly by your employees. And there's two stories that came out. The first one just to, is work-life balance, which everybody throws around, has a nice plaque on the wall. But they say you actually absolutely believe and insist that people have a life outside of their work. You know, what, what, what we found, particularly a lot during COVID, when I, whenever anybody new joins the company, because I seldom interview people, I meet them generally a month after they've joined. And I always like to ask them sort of what their goals are. And everybody's inclined to talk about their career goals. So I want to be a CEO someday. I want to be a head of marketing. I want to have people reporting to me, whatever. But I've started pressing people. And I find that there are more people out there than we realize who say, look, my goals aren't really about my job. My goal is to be as efficient at my job and as productive at my job as possible because my real goals and dreams are something that I do when I leave the office. Maybe it's art, maybe it's music, maybe it's, um, you know, running, whatever it might be. And they're maybe a little hesitant because they think what I want to hear from them is about their career ambition and all this drive that they have. And, by, and believe me, lots of people do. And I love that as well. What I love is the person who's confident enough and comfortable enough in their own skin to say that my goals aren't about my job. My job is a means to an end. And like, that's totally cool. And as long as we're open and honest about it, we're going to work toward those goals for you. The second one that really caught my attention is what you did supporting local restaurants and combining it with your employees now having to work at home. Tell, tell us a little bit about it. And I under, from what I understand, it's caught on across the United States. Yeah, this was right after COVID and we were one of the biggest purveyors of every restaurant and bar in that little area. And we knew that they were, you know, being shut down or at least forced to not do anything in person. And so we developed a program or an incentive for all of our employees that we would reimburse them for every dollar that they spent ordering takeout or delivery from any of those establishments. And it didn't matter if it was lunch or dinner or breakfast or whatever, and it wasn't, it could be for them or their whole family. Um, the reason we could justify it was because think of immediately how much money we were saving as soon as COVID started, our travel and entertainment budget, parking, all these other kinds of things. We're like, well, you know, we might as well incentivize our employees to support the community that we're in. Somebody tweeted about the fact that we were doing it and Mark Cuban saw it and Mark Cuban retweeted it and basically said, I'm going to start this for all of my employees across all of my companies. And it really just sort of spread like wildfire that lots of employers and that were basically reimbursing their employees for any dollars that they spent at local restaurants during it. If they'd want to save one restaurant and bar from having to shutter its doors, then then it was more than worth it. Uh, that's fantastic. Hi, it's Tony Chapman. You're listening to Chatter That Matters presented by RBC. We'll 
come back, John Dick tells us about what's happening in the world around us. We'll be right back. Hi, it's Tony Chapman, and a big thank you to RBC for sponsoring Chatter That Matters. Speaking of matters, I have a question for you. You check in on your family, your health, even your car. When was the last time you did a check-in on your finances? Well, RBC Check-In is a virtual experience with no obligation. I got answers to all of my money questions, big and small, and I now have a plan for my future. Book a check-in at rbc.com slash check-in. Hello? You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. Welcome back to Chatter That Matters. I'm chatting with John Dick, whose company Civic Science is doing to research what Uber did to taxis. John, there's so many areas that we can cover. Your newsletter does such a great job. Let's start with your newsletter. Almost every Saturday, you post this newsletter that is, and I called you earlier and I said, you're very Canadian. It's got, it's self-deprecating, a lot of humility, but at the same time, it's packed with incredible insights. And I love at the end, uh, the, the most favorite questions of the week. It's just it, in, in one page, it's got so much energy happening. Tell me a little bit about the motivation behind the newsletter and why my listeners should read it. Well, I mean, it was remarkably organic. I mean, so much that it just, I'm blown away by sort of what it evolved into. It started out as just a very simple, one of our clients suggested one time, this was probably five years ago in November. And he said, it occurs to us that you're studying what's going on in all these other industries, but what we usually get from you is healthcare information. It would be really useful to know what's going on, what you're seeing in other industries. Like it'd be, it'd be great for us to sort of learn some of that. And he said, you should, you know, you should start like a newsletter for your clients that just sort of enlighten us about trends you're seeing in other markets and whatever. The first week it went out, I think maybe 40 or 50 people were on the distribution list. And I chose Saturday mornings against conventional wisdom. You don't send work emails on a weekend. Now it's in, you know, thousands and thousands, right? Our commercial ethos is that everything affects everything and everything is constantly changing. So you have to study everything constantly. And what that newsletter aims to do is to show all of these people that it's important to understand what's going on in markets outside of your own, right? If, you, if you're if you only in telecom and all you do all day is look at data at telecom, you are not understanding the full picture of the consumer because my, my decisions as a telecom consumer are influenced by millions of other things. We just found that newsletter to be an instru- a fun vehicle to enlighten people about how trends were intersecting with each other and how they influenced one another. And if I told you who reads it, you wouldn't believe me. Like it's just, it's not just the number of people, but how it sort of seems to have connected with, with CEOs of the biggest companies in the world, celebrities, like global leaders, right? Like it's just why there's something about, again, I appreciate the kind words about this, the, the tone and style and so on. But I think it's really this idea that you probably are thinking about the world you live in too myopically. And if you don't sort of step back and look at the broader world of what's going on around all these consumers, you're going to miss something. And I think I think real sophisticated business leaders understand that. Give us some ideas in terms of how we should move from looking at the world myopically to being much more 360 degrees, especially nowadays where I find this world is dividing. Social media is pushing us to the fringe. It's me versus you. It's red, red versus blue. What should we be thinking about to make humanity a better place? Data only works or works best when it's relatable. Whether you're the CEO of a Fortune 10 company or whether you're, you know, my mom, you need to be able to to digest and relate to the numbers to say, oh, yeah, I actually see that in my personal. Like the, the CEO of Bank of America is a consumer, 
right? He's got kids. He's got a drives a car. He's got, he gets frustrated working with contractors, all the things that everybody else, right? And so the more we can relate to people with the numbers in a, in a personal way. And I think that's what we try to accomplish with that newsletter. So what should we be thinking about, worrying about, focusing on? There's political tribalism. There's the us versus them, all these things that you mentioned. And what we, what we hope we can convey through numbers and through the content we produce is, or, or not, maybe not convey, but encourage is a degree of empathy. Understanding not just that there's this other group of people out there that disagree with you, but why they disagree with you. Because right now, no one wants to get past the fact that you're on that team and I'm on this team, but to relate it all objectively to where it comes from. And bifurcation isn't just political. This pandemic has exacerbated a lot of division in the country between the rich and the poor, right? The rich have most certainly gotten way richer over the last year. Uh, and, and rich is also relative. Basically, if you've kept your job and your income since last March, chances are you're way better off financially than you were last March, right? Because of all the things you didn't spend money on since last March. We talk so much about how the economy's booming and all these household savings rates are through the roof and all of that. But, oh, guess what? 16 to 20% of Americans are way worse off financially. They've lost their job. They lost their business. And, and we tend to like wash over that by virtue of simply looking at where, where the majority sits. And so that's one. Race has obviously been, uh, divisions in race have been exacerbated. And that's both cultural because of the George Floyd crisis last summer crisis with the Asian American community this year, right? Those things have happened, but also from a public health standpoint, minorities are both had more difficulty accessing the vaccine and are more uh, reticent to get the vaccine for lots of justifiable historical public health reasons, right? What do you think the role of media is? Because I look at, I think it started in the States, it's certainly happening in Canada where the media is now taking sides. And I'd use your example, obviously, Fox versus CNN. And I would say the very similar things are happening in Canada. Uh, I mean, Tony, if we could solve this problem, we would win a Nobel Prize for it. It, it is, it is one of the most pernicious, difficult problems, I think, because I, at the end of the day, media companies have to be biased toward making money. They may not want to say that out loud. They may not even deeply want to believe it. They may truly believe in objective professional journalism and all of those kinds of things. But if they can't pay their bills and they're laying off their newsroom, um, they can't, do any good whatsoever, right? So compromise now starts to play into the factor into the equation. And the truth of the matter is that consumers seek out content that affirms their existing beliefs. The vast majority of Americans want content and information. They open, they click, they share the thing that aligns with their existing values. When you've got an audience of people who begin to migrate away from you, if you take positions on things that offend their sensibilities, you start to lose an audience member, you lose ad revenue. Now, next thing you know, you're losing your newsroom. And it's an incredibly unfortunate position these media companies are in. I want to turn to social media because I was reading some of your points of view on chasing social media stereotypes. I worked on the Dove brand for years and we learned that women, because they were chasing the covers of magazines and Hollywood and all this photoshopping, retouching, never felt confident about their beauty. When I read your point, which is in social media, that we post what we want people to believe. We want to be the most interesting person. We want to be looking like we have the most exciting times. It's creating this whole sense of chasing what doesn't exist. Tell us a little bit more about your thoughts on that. It explains a lot, by the way. Um, it you can you can draw a direct line from what we call aspirational self-disclosure, which means the idea that I'm going to share things about myself to advance the image of myself I want people to believe. We consciously or not, um, deliberately or not, 
we post the pictures of ourselves that look the best. We post from eating at the best restaurants and the coolest vacations that we're on. We do that, um, again, to portray this, this idealized version of ourselves to people. And we do it in one way on LinkedIn. We do it in a different way on Instagram, a different way on Facebook, a different way on Twitter. But we've all sort of figured it out, at least the people who know what they're doing. And they win, right? Because you get more followers and more clicks and what have you. And it's caused lots of societal issues, too. It's created levels of stress because people who aren't as good at playing that game and aren't as self-aware of what really happens, they look at it and say, oh, my God, those everyone else has this interesting life and I don't. All these people have high achieving kids and I don't. Right. And and of course, that's we know that's not true, that just some people are better at that self-promotion than others. And so so it's created even, you know, lots of real public health and mental health problems. A couple of the other areas that you talk about is just how. COVID hasn't been kind to women. At the top of the list of the biggest tragedies, I think, of the last 16, 17 months is the extent to which this pandemic has had a ridiculously outsized impact on women. Different groups of women, too. It's younger women, because younger women tend to be more commonly employed in like service jobs, right? That were the ones that lost their jobs. It's professional women who were asked to leave the workforce. And as we know, millions of professional women did leave the workforce. Why? They left the workforce for many reasons. But why men greater than women? A couple reasons. One, women still take on a disproportionate share of um, care of their children, but also their elder parents. We don't talk a lot about that, right? And in this pandemic, the at-risk people were our parents. And that's, you know, the the women household leaders tend to take on more of that emotional and, and logistical burden. But also like one simple explanation is that we still have a really troubling wage disparity between men and women in America. Women still make 80 cents on the dollar compared to men in the same job. When households were reconciling a new, stra- a, new, a new schedule for their kids and somebody had to stay at home, it wasn't a coin flip between the man and the woman. When you do that millions and millions of times and 80% women are making 80% on the dollar compared to men, guess who was more likely to say, you know what, I'll, I'm going to not work any longer. All of that has then, has then manifested itself in mental health, physical health. Women have been more likely to gain weight during the, since the pandemic. Women are more likely to have been reporting depression and higher levels of stress. They've been exercising less and so on and so on. And, and, you know, and men just have not, we tend to be oblivious, right? And we've not either noticed or we've actively participated in some ways in, in that unequal impact of the pandemic. And, you know, our data just shows it at every, every possible angle you could see it. Talking to John Dick from uh, Civic Science, uh, incredible story, really believes in, I thought it was truth in numbers and strength in numbers, but he really talks about strength in people. So when I look at the essence of your company, connecting the dots, letting people make mission critical decisions, it's the speed of life. And on the other side, we talk about a world that's divided, that social media is nudging people to corners, media is nudging you to the edge. How can the world that you exist in where you're getting the collective energy and voice of people, how can we better use the stuff that's coming out of civic science to make really good decisions versus the ones that might get me the next ballots in the next election? What happens all too often, particularly like in politics and social cultural sort of debate is that numbers become weaponized. You can create numbers to support any narrative that you want. And unfortunately, the average consumer out there doesn't understand enough, nor should they, about research methodology to be able to distinguish between good numbers and bad ones. And so that's a big, you know, that's part of it. And so we have to be able to paint a picture of life around those numbers that people are like, oh, yeah, that I understand. Put the numbers aside, right? When we say women are disproportionately affected by the pandemic, 
Okay. And I can say there's 72% more likely to record, report high levels of stress. Okay. Well, so what? But then you say, well, is the, is your wife spending more time caring for your grandparents or, or your kids' grandparents? Oh yeah. Right. Um, was your wife more likely to have to like, um, leave work. Yeah. Right. So it's, 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 t- it's making the information and that's true, not just to the consumer who, who ultimately goes to vote or buys and whatever, but the leader of the business, it's reminding the audience, whether the audience is the consumer or the business decision maker, that these numbers are grounded in real people with real experiences and real fears and hopes. It's figuring out how to make you relate to that is the challenge, not, not the number itself. As we start opening the doors again, what advice can you bring them to make sure that that invitation is based on who the consumer is today versus who the consumer was before the pandemic? There's no one size fits all answer for that, Tony. I think it depends so much on who their consumer is, right? And they need to know and understand those people. What makes them tick? It wasn't rocket science. It was just like, look, this is the group of people who are more cautious. This is the group of people who are more cavalier. Where do they shop? Like, let's figure that out. And then like, like, let's build our strategy accordingly. And so I think the answer to your question is so dependent on what the business is, who they serve, where they are physically, what they sell, what their values are. Is it safe to say that a lot of people, especially the people in the services business are in there because they're passionate about food or they're passionate about uh, a tourist location? How do they take the time? Where can, where can they go to to get a better sense of who's coming in their door? Well, they really need to find ways to invest in survey research. There are ways to survey your customers, right? Talk to them. You've got to be in the information gathering business. But I would think there might be ways through local small business organizations and trade groups and peers, right, who can join forces to do some of this work together, but you cannot fly blind. Three things I learned from John Dick today, and it really comes down to my mantra of head, heart, and hands. Head, easy to understand. Make your numbers relatable. Make it something that people can take away, not just infographics, but they can see it. Heart, emotive, personalize it. You know, you're talking about women being hurt hard in pandemic. The thing John says, are they spending more time taking care of elderly parents? Are they spending more time focusing on the kids in school? Really personalize it. But the most important thing is actionable. Find a way to get to that middle ground so that people are listening to all points of views. I think this world has divided, but I think it's people like you, John, with civic science and taking the collective voice and that that voice that doesn't always get heard and bringing that to the table, I think gives us all permission to realize that this is one planet, one human race. So I appreciate you uh, joining me in Chat of the Matters. My pleasure, Tony. Really glad to be here. Thanks. Joining me now is Craig Cameron, Director of Client Experience at RBC. Craig, welcome. Great to be here. Thanks, Tony. How do you identify what matters most to a client? Well, we think it's really important to understand what motivates consumers and drives them. There's different people across the population, and we need to really understand what the breadth of that looks like. So a lot of companies do client experience, customer satisfaction surveys. You've probably all been asked to do that after shopping at the grocery store, et cetera. We need to go deeper and wider in understanding people. So what we do is we use a bunch of different techniques and different approaches, including things like ethnography, where we'll go into people's houses and sort of really understand how our product fits into their lives. Um, we do online communities. There's just lots of other ways to to do it beyond just measuring whether your service is satisfactory. And, and we think those are really critical to understand people's goals and how we can help them achieve them. What's the difference between a fad and a trend? The easy answer would be, obviously, trends are things that last longer. But I think 
the difference where we would see it is fads are things that are maybe not sustainable, um, kind of short-lived, fun, uh, things you do in the moment, but you're not really thinking about how they fit into your life and, and whether they're consistent with some of your long-term things that you want to do. Whereas trends are things that you might be able to point to across different industries and say, hey, look at people are doing this and it's sort of growing in people's consciousness and they're expressing it through different behaviors. Uh, an example here might be like the trend of personal wellness, which you know is physical, but also mental and financial. And we're seeing that in all parts of our lives. You know, one could argue something like a meditation app it might be more of a fad, maybe, because, you know, it might fade in usage. But the overall trend of people wanting to look after themselves financially, physically and mentally is not going away anytime soon. So that would be more of a long term trend. In your position of director of client experience, I have to think the last 15 to 18 months, as we try to get used to the concept of COVID, something that doesn't seem like it's going away. How does that change how we think, feel, and behave? Yeah, it has been a really, really challenging time for pretty much everybody. I think, you know, one of the things that's been most interesting about this crisis is every single person, regardless of where you sit in society, has been impacted by it. Uh, so that's a bit very unique in terms of the kinds of crisis that people, the world tends to go through. Coming out of this, it's going to be interesting to, to watch for a few things. Uh, I think right now people are feeling a sense of relief and optimism based on our vaccination rates and caseloads. But we're typically Canadian, a little bit cautious, really worried about slipping back to you know lockdowns. And that was a, an obviously a very upsetting experience for most people. And one thing that I think we want to watch for is uh, the K-shaped recovery. A lot of people have talked about a K-shaped recovery for the economy. But I think it's really uh, true that this has hit some people a lot harder than others. And as we come out of this, I think we're going to see an even more diverse reaction among people. It's not going to be a uniform way in which Canadians think or Canadians behave. I think it will depend very much on your personal circumstances. So is big better? I mean, a client like RBC that touches so many lives, how do you find a way to create client experiences that matter to the individual? You have to try to do it where you're not trying to do one one size fits all. So I think what we've learned over time, and I think digital has been a real, really helpful for that, is the ability to customize that experience based on what customers either uh, do or want to do. So increasingly trying to get it to the point where our, our services and our approaches are more intuitive and, and less assuming that everyone wants the same thing. So I think we're, we're definitely on a, on a journey there and we've made a lot of progress in terms of being able to customize that interaction interface and even sometimes the conversations in a lot of cases in order to really uh, meet your specific needs and recognize that everybody is different. Craig Cameron, thank you for joining me Chatter That Matters. Thank you very much, Tony. Great to be here. This is Tony Chapman. You've been listening to Chatter That Matters. Let's chat soon. Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman has been a presentation of RBC. Fridays, join Tony Chapman for Chatter That Matters on the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network.